unless something else comes up that has to be handled <clears throat> fairly shortly now. And uh, the more information we can have to make it complete so that it will have the impact it needs to have uh, is important. Let's go then for today to Matthew 11. I want to pick this up where we left off uh, last time in honoring our Father and examining some various scriptures about our Father in heaven so that we might better understand Him and how He thinks. Matthew 11, uh, verse 25. At that time, Emmanuel answered and said, I thank you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Well, he addresses His Father in that way. You are the Father of everything. We need to be sure that we keep that in mind, that He is everything there is to be, that we must have the utmost respect for our Father in heaven. Because you have hid these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Now that immediately backs up what I was just saying in the announcement about doing a study of the Bible, but the mighty and important and smart and scholarly of intellectuals of the world simply cannot understand the things that we are beginning to understand. They are not only unable, but these things are actually, by design, hidden from them and are given to babes. That would be us. So we can be thankful to the Lord of heaven and earth, that He has opened our minds to begin to see what others simply cannot see. So you see why I make the comment that we are probably, of all people on earth, including not us, but others of God's church in other areas and other organizations for that matter, but they aren't focused on this, are they? They don't see the need the urgency, or even a glimmer of light at what we are beginning to examine. So they are not, in that sense, then qualified, since they are not conscious of what needs to be done. That leaves us to form a team to study, to comprehend, to know what God has to say. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. God thought about it, and it seemed good to him to hide these things from the mighty, the intellectuals, the scholarly, and reveal them to those who are babes in terms of understanding and education. All things are delivered to me of my Father, and no man knows the Son but the Father, neither knows any man the Father save the Son and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Now we are going through this study using Father as the base word, but anything Christ said in His ministry on this earth, any example He gave, is precisely the way the Father thinks. They think just alike. Their minds are tuned together in perfect synchronization. So if Christ said anything, 
His father thinks exactly the same way. So you can expand this thought, this study, to include the son, because there is no difference. They may be two beings, but they think just alike. They could complete each other's sentences. After you live with someone as a mate for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, well, maybe after 60 years you can't complete each other's sentences at all, but... Uh, Oh, well, we had had somebody have their 60th anniversary. They, they probably can still. They still got minds. But if you live with someone long enough, you begin to understand where they're coming from and what they're going to say. And if they have a, a slip of the brain, uh, you can finish it for them. Or if they even hesitate for just a split second before they find the word, you already just say it for them. Well, it's a little bit like the father and son, only it's far more so with them because they simply think alike. They never argue. There's no shadow of turning between their attitudes. They get along perfectly. Oh, that we could. And he to whomsoever the son will reveal the father. No man can come except he be drawn of the father. John six forty four. And Christ is the one that he uses to do that. So there is an exclusive club here, a clique, if you will. The Father, the Son, and those who have been called out of this world, of which there are only a few ten thousands out of six and a half billion people living today. That is incredible, isn't it? That we could be part of that. He is selected a very few, to give his spirit and to give his understanding. What a select group that is. Hard, it's hard to believe sometimes that we could have been selected out of this world and most not. That thought or the idea that some Sunday keepers and some so-called Christians could be in the kingdom of God without first understanding the truth repenting and being given God's Spirit, that they could be included. Well, I did that whole series, or began it, on the exclusivity of the church, or how exclusive is the church, based on proving whether that could or could not be. And it led to a lot of different things in that series of nine that are eye-opening and absolutely provable in Scripture. So there's very few like you. Very few. And you might say, that's a godsend. No, I don't mean it that way. I mean that we are an exclusive group that God has called out for His purposes. And He doesn't want real smart people, lest they become vain and egotistical about it. But He wants those who don't have a clue in their head and turn them on to His truth. Those that he specifically chooses. Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now there's the Father and the Son's attitude toward us. He wants us to come because we have turmoil, confusion, frustration, difficulties in life. And he wants us to turn to him for rest, for peace. It doesn't always come easy, and He doesn't always give us peace immediately. But there is the answer 
to our deepest longings, as Paul put it, I think, where was it, in Philippians? Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. So he says, take my yoke. A yoke was something they put over oxen or horses' necks so that they might pull a load, so that they might work, so that they might be of use and productive. So he said, take my yoke. This is a spiritual yoke that we take on. We take on the responsibility of spiritual work, of spiritual production. Take my yoke upon you, this responsibility of Christianity. Remember that very few are called to understand. Very few have their minds opened so that they can read the Bible and actually know what it means. And you are among those few. So he is telling you here, challenging you to take his yoke and learn of me. Now, we may not quote this one very often. We quote that we should grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. It's a very good scriptural quote to have in your repertoire. But this is saying essentially the same thing. Shoulder the responsibility. Take the challenge and learn of me. Now, the world has their view of history. They have their view of the promised land. They have their view of Jerusalem. Is it a deception? Is it a counterfeit? Is it true or is it not? We need to learn of God and what He has done and what true history is, do we not? You studied history in grade school, junior high, high school, perhaps college. How much did you learn? Just enough to pass the test, probably. And how much of it was false information anyhow? Wouldn't it be nice to know the truth? And learn of the things God has done and where He did them and whom He did them with. He's challenging us to learn of Him in all ways. For I am meek and lowly in heart. Now the context here is deliverance from our burdens and the attitude we ought to have. So learning of Him is not just what I just said. It can include everything, of course, about Him. But His attitude, the meekness and lowliness in heart, is how He is. And that is one of the hardest things for human beings to learn. Because by nature, we are proud, vain, self-centered, egotistical, arrogant, and anything else you want to add to that that's negative. <clears throat> that's the way we are by nature. He, by nature, is meek and lowly in heart. Not proud or vain in any way. And you shall find rest to your souls. So long as we walk in pride, we will not find rest. So coming to have the attitude of the Father and the Son is imperative if we're going to have rest. Now he said, bring it, my, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, as he put it in Isaiah. But it takes time to get rid of self, pride, vanity, and ego, doesn't it? And putting our opinions and our way of doing things ahead of other people. Because that's where our vanity is most often expressed, is toward other people, 
sometimes perhaps toward God, but our self-righteousness shows to others. Having his attitudes is the answer to our problems. Learning to have those attitudes takes time. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. He's quoting Isaiah there. So coming to have the attitude of the Father and of the Son, it's not just a matter of knowing who they are, but coming to have the very same attitudes and approaches to life that they have. Let's go to chapter 12, pick it up in verse 49. And he stretched forth, oh, the the context here, remember the case where he had people all around him and his his mother and his brothers and sisters are outside and someone came, gave him a message and says, your mother and your brothers and sisters want to see you. Uh, And he said, and he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. So he is including us in his immediate family. Now he was not denying that his mother, who was certainly a godly woman, or she would not have been chosen to raise the Christ. And his brothers and sisters knew a lot of truth from him. I don't know exactly what their minds were. But he was saying that those who understand my words and live by them, those are my true brothers and sisters. So he grew up with brothers and sisters, as you and I did, and as everyone perhaps does for the most part. But he said, these I'm closer to than my own physical family. Because there's something special about being a part of a spiritual family that God and Christ formulate by calling specific ones that they want. He called you by name. I want that one. Now there is the love of the Father. Why would he call you? Why would he call me? Why did he call Paul? Paul hated the church. Paul hated anything to do with Christ. He killed Christians every time he got a chance. Literally killed them. Or had them killed. And God God looked down at Saul and said, I want that one. Going to rename him. I want him. So if you're sitting in this room today and understand the truth, You are specifically called of God. Why do we get discouraged or frustrated? Self-pity and so on. It's because we forget about those words. We forget the things that are in this book. That's why we need to study it every day. I caught myself, I think it was yesterday, I was thinking this direction And I thought, what am I doing? And I happened to think of a scripture. And I thought, oh, that's the answer. Why didn't I think of that? Because I'd forgotten it. I let it slip to the ground. And it helped me a great deal when it, oh, came to mind. 
Oh, that's the answer to that. Quit worrying about it. So simple. Every attitude, every problem, every trial and difficulty we have, there's an answer for in here. That's why it's important to know this book. Not let it get away from us. If we do God's will, and it is His will that we live by every word of God here, Matthew 4, 4, then He calls us brother, sister, mother. That's a pretty exclusive company to be a brother, a mother to Christ Himself and the Father. It's the way He considers us. Uh, 13, verse 34 <clears throat> All these things spoke Emmanuel to the multitude in parables, and without a parable spoke he not to them. He spoke pretty plainly to his disciples, but when the multitudes came around, he did not speak to them without parables. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. But to the multitudes, they would still not be understood. Now, I made a comment. Uh, I, was it my last sermon or, or recently anyway? Where I said that Christ was a deceiver. I, I want to go back and explain that a little more because it could be mistaken. He is not a liar in the sense that he uh, lies to people and tells them untruths. But he said things and said them in parables in such a way that they might be taken and snared and deceived. Someone who is deceived does not know the truth does not understand what he is doing and the implications of it, can perhaps be saved out of that in the millennium if he lives or in the great white throne judgment because he was deceived. But if you do not obey God when you have full understanding of what you're doing, then perhaps you have to be consigned to the lake of fire. So God has allowed Satan to deceive the whole world that in the end they might be saved. Meantime, they are deceived. And he did not speak in parables to make the meaning clear to the multitudes. He spoke in parables so that they would not understand. Then Emmanuel sent the multitude away and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, Declare to us the parable of the tares of the field. You gave this parable, now you sent everybody away. Would you now explain it to us? He answered and said to them, He that sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, the good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The, the enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity. So God is love, his mercy endures forever, but those who are intransigent, who are unwilling to obey when they do understand, will go into a lake of fire.
He said there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It will happen. If you insist on being a liar, a cheat, a thief, an adulterer, or drunk, or whatever, it says there at the end, of, in the summation, at the end of the book of Revelation, you'll not be in the kingdom of God. makes it very, very plain that these things have to be overcome. Now, if you're deceived and don't know what's going on, there is the possibility that you will not be judged that harshly, but will yet have a chance. Verse 43, Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. This is echoed in Malachi 4, or it's said there and echoed here. Who has ears to hear, let him hear. So, even though God is very loving and kind and gentle and merciful to those who will follow His ways, He can be harsh in judgment as well if we are stubborn, stiff-necked, and rebellious, vain, proud, and taking care of ourselves instead of others, as we shall see. We need to understand how the Father looks at us. Now let's go to chapter 16. Christ asked the disciples who he was. Verse 16, And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Emmanuel answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it to you, but my Father which is in heaven. Most people did not understand who he was. And even Peter did not fully grasp it until the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. He was willing to turn his back on him, to deny him three times, and to run, as did the other disciples. So, even though he comprehended on some level, he did not fully grasp it until later on. But God had to reveal it. So, I don't know how you, perhaps, came across a knowledge of the truth of God and began to understand His Word, it happened to many people in many different ways. Catching a radio broadcast in the middle of the night, plain truth blowing across the road has happened in Africa in a story I remember. Many, many different ways. A relative saying something and you picking up on it. Sometimes you've studied and accepted it, and the one who revealed it to you never was converted and left it entirely. Lost interest. So many, many ways that we came to a knowledge of God's way and he's the one that did it. We think maybe happenstance? No way. If you're here, it's because God directed it to be that way. Verse 27. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Now, there's a little bit of information that's pretty important, isn't it? You have a whole Protestant world that says we don't need works. That it's by grace only. And works are not necessary. Well, you can misunderstand a few things Paul wrote because Paul wrote things hard to be understood, said Peter himself. But this clear statement of Christ, I think, is pretty important. He says, you will be rewarded according to your works. Now, salvation may be by pardon that is given, 
That's grace that we don't deserve because we have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So you can't earn salvation. It is a free gift of God, but without works, which demonstrate faith, I'll show you my faith by my works. Faith is an incredible part in the process of obeying God and becoming part of His kingdom. So, salvation in specificity (laughs) might not be by works, but what reward you have in the kingdom of God, he says, is rewarded by works. And there's no translation or unclear message here. It's just a plain statement. So, should we get along on the process of the program of producing good works, good service to others? Because that is what our reward is based on. It says, lay up treasure in heaven, not on the earth where it can go away, but in heaven where it is permanent. It's banked and it stays there. Unless we brag and pat ourselves on the back and lose it as a result. But it can be there unless you make withdrawals on it. All right, I want to go to chapter 18 now, beginning in verse 10. Just picking out at random some things here that give us a little better view of the way God and His Son think so that we might better understand our Father in heaven and better be able to pray and interact with Him because we are supposed to have a relationship with Him. Now, He's telling us here that we have to be very, very careful and become His little children and have an attitude of humility and meekness, not pride, vanity, and ego. And yet we are beset with our stubborn pride, are we not? And it hinders us. It hinders us in our relationships with others and so on. But he says here then, Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones. For I say to you, that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. So God has angels who look after little children. We've used the term uh, in the Protestant world at least of guardian angels. I don't know whether he has specific angels assigned to specific children, perhaps. But certainly the angels are there to look after human beings. And he's speaking of children here in particular. Now, he is really talking about little ones in the truth. Little ones spiritually. He uses the analogy of physical babes, (coughs) but he's referring... (coughs) really, to us as babies or babes in Christ and how we treat them. And their angels always behold the face of the Father in heaven. And they report to him what goes on down here. Satan does as well as the accuser. They are there to protect, to overlook, to help, to give God good reports. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Now, we might look at our lives in the past and say, Boy, what a mess. Look at all the things I've thought and done. 
Look at how far short of the glory of God I was. And yet, it is His attitude, it is His mind to redeem, to save that which was lost. And He uses the example of sheep. How think you if a man have a hundred sheep and one of them be gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go into the mountains and seek that which is gone astray? There's ninety-nine that are safely in the fold. What about the one that is lost? The one that's in trouble? And if so be that he find it, truly I say to you, he rejoices more of that sheep than of the ninety-nine which went not astray. So God... In his mind, his approach, his attitude really wants to help that which is maimed, weak, lame, hurt, lost. Very much it is in the top of his mind to take care of those. He loves the 99, but he will spend extra effort to try to pull us out of lousy attitudes and approaches. Sometimes he even has to chasten us, to put us through trials and tribulations, to get us to turn, to quit being spiritually lost and wandering about doing our own thing, and to turn back to him. For it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now, we can treat each other badly. We can take each other for granted. We can backbite and stab each other and assassinate the character of each other. And do, do we not? We hold them in little regard sometimes. We, in our own assessment, are right. And they, if they disagree with us, are wrong. That is our opinion. Good or bad, that is our opinion. Our opinion generally is more important than someone else's. Is it not? We put our, what we think, of course what we think is good. Of course it's right. How could it be wrong? It's my opinion. It has to be a good one. That is vanity, ego, and self-righteousness. So we will think higher of our own opinion than we do someone else's. We will feel that we have a better way of doing things than someone else does. Our way is the best way. That's just the way human beings naturally, normally, carnally think. But the carnal mind is enmity to God, we must remember. There is a way that seems right to us, our way, but the ends thereof are the ways of death by nature. That's why Paul says we should esteem others higher than ourselves. But we don't, do we? We put our opinion, our assessment, our analysis ahead of theirs. It's just natural. And it's easy to despise what we might consider a little one. They're little, we're not. We're bigger. We may not be big, but we're bigger than them. <laughs> you know? It's like the expression I use once in a while, I may be slow, but I'm ahead of you. I've seen it on a bumper sticker. 
you're trying to get around somebody and you can't do it, well, they're ahead of you. But that is our natural reaction, is it not? Well, he doesn't want any of the little ones to perish, and he says we should be very, very careful to take care of them, to be sure they don't get lost, to do all we can to retrieve them if they're in trouble. That is his attitude. Thankfully, it's his attitude toward me. It's his attitude toward you. If there's any way, he's going to pull us out of it and make things right. And he works at it. Just a little insight there that he gives us about God's attitude and approach toward us little lambs down here, or us stubborn goats, whatever we are. He wants to be sure that he takes care of us. Let's go to chapter 20. Pick it up in about verse 8, I want. Is that what? No, I'm in 19. That won't work. 20, verse 20. <clears throat> then came to him the mother of Zebedee, or Zebedee's children, with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. Now, this woman had a worshipful attitude toward Christ. Okay? She thought very highly of him, respected him greatly. But were her thoughts in line with his thoughts, is the question that comes up. He said to her, what do you want? What is this certain thing that you would have? She said to him, grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on your right hand and the other on the left, in your kingdom. Well, there's a mother for you. She wants the best for her children. But this mother took a narrow view. It kind of echoes what I was just saying, or that Christ said, really. Her children were better than other children simply because they were her children. No other reason. They were hers. That made them better than those other ten disciples who were there. So to her, it seemed like a reasonable request. She had a worshipful attitude toward him, did she not? And yet she didn't understand the error in her thinking. She related only to herself and her two sons. This is a very typical example and a very good one of how we tend to think. Had she really thought it through and said, well, let's see, we've got these 12 here. This one's good at that. This one's good at that. Uh, yeah, no, not him. But after assessing all the good and the bad qualities of all these 12 men, I have objectively determined that my two sons are the best of the lot. <laughs> I don't think she thought it out that far. I think she just says, they're my kids, and I'd like to see them there on your right hand and your left hand because you're the worshipful master. Natural, but not right. But Emmanuel answered and said, you know not what you ask. She did have a good attitude toward him, but she just really didn't understand her own motivations. 
She didn't understand her own thinking. He says, you don't even know what you're asking. You don't get the whole picture. Now, people often do that. We'll sit around very easily and second guess what is going on or what leadership might be doing, whether it's an American Motors, that's gone, an American Motor Company, let's say, Ford or pick one. Whether you're working for this company or that, labor always questions management. Management always questions labor. It's just the way things are in the business world. It's the way things are in families. It's the way things are in churches. There are very few of us who don't do that. I don't remember ever questioning anything Herbert Armstrong did. I should have drawn a laugh. Of course I did. I would look at what was going on and think, that's not right. But you know, I didn't have as many facts as he had sometimes. I was not considering as big a picture as he was considering at times. Now, there were some times when I questioned what was going on, and I was absolutely right. And it turned out it wasn't the thing to do. I remember an example of when I was in college, they were building the gymnasium across the street from my dorm. And they were working on Saturday, all day long. I could hear cranes and trucks coming and going and construction noises. And it really bothered me. Now, the explanation officially was, well, these people are under contract and they have a certain date to finish this by. And if they don't, there are penalties assessed and we don't control a contractor. So they can work on Saturday if they want to. No, it did not have to be that way. I still believe to this day that was absolutely wrong. When you put out the bids, you can put in there very easily a clause that says there will be no work on Saturdays from Friday night to Saturday sunset, and there will be no work on pick out the dates when the holy days come, and you can delete those from the contract. And you can also say, we're giving you extra time because you can't work during those. So therefore, in this job that normally would be finished on this date, we're giving you till this date because you can only work six days a week. That can easily be done. I didn't buy it then. I don't buy it now. Because of what God says. But there will always be disputes, and there will always be people who are second-guessing everything that is done. I didn't mean to, to get away from that thought. Yes, sometimes the leadership does make mistakes. But it is a very bad thing for us to continually have a wrong or a negative attitude and approach to what is being done. If you don't like the way something's being done, you should have enough intestinal fortitude and backbone to come and say, is this the right thing to do? Do I have all the facts? I have these three. Are there any more that I ought to consider before I decide that this should not be done? 
As I said in the announcement, Daryl said is probably a very, very low uh, value in terms of authority. God said is the highest authority. That's why you need to search these scriptures to be sure what I say is what God said. And that is why, for the most part, you do not hear me telling many stories. You hear me just reading the Bible and commenting on what God's Word says. That is the only safe territory I have. Now, sometimes I may leave out a scripture or not think of one that might shade things a little differently than what I might have commented. Or I might say Christ deceived. Yes, he did in a way, but he was not a deceiver. He said things in such a way so that they would be, and he planned it ahead of time, so they would be deceived. Because if they had known the truth, he would have to judge them accordingly. So he said things in such a way that would lead them to deception, though he did not outright lie. He spoke in such a way that they could not understand it. Now, he speaks in a way, once he opens your mind by his Spirit, so that you can understand and not be deceived. Because this is your chance at salvation. This is our only chance at salvation. And therefore, we need to understand everything as clearly as we possibly can so that we have the optimal opportunity to fulfill the purpose for which we are drawing breath and to which we have been called. So he wants us to understand it. He does not want me to speak in parables. He wants me to speak clearly and loudly. And enumerate our sins for us, so that we might know what must be overcome, so that we can be a part of the kingdom of God. So things are different for us than they were for the rest of the world. God treats us differently. We are his children. The other and are children of the devil at the moment. Now, in one sense, through creation, yes, they're the children of God. But in terms of spirituality, they are the sons of the devil. We are the sons of God. Did not Christ say that? You are of your father, the devil. And those people had what? They had a lot of understanding of the history of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had a lot of understanding of what God had done in the past. They had the Old Testament. They had the law of Moses. But they gave it lip service, and they made their own rules, and they added to the things that God said, and they did not live by the laws of God. So Christ very plainly told them, even though you're religious, even though you accept our Father in heaven, you are of your Father, the devil. Well, that's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? And yet that's the way God views the religions of this world. They are deceived by Satan the devil, and they are not spiritually the sons of God. 
That is reserved for a very, very few. And God dotes on those. He watches everything we do. He reads our every thought. He counts the hair on our head. Wow. That's interest. Aren't you, with your children, so concerned about everything about them and how they're doing things and what their attitude is and how they dress and what they eat and where they go and all those things as a parent? You're very interested in your own children, just like this lady was. Her interest was so great, she blotted out everything else. But Emmanuel answered and said, verse 22, You know not what you ask. Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They say to him, the two sons, We are able. Sure. Anything you can do, we can do. There's no problem. He said to them, You shall drink indeed of my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. He was going to die. And they were all, save John, martyred and killed, just like he was. So he says, yeah, you're going to go through what I went through. Not to the same extent he did, but the same fate. So you'll, you'll go through those things, he says, but to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brothers. <laughs> I guess so. Those two want to sit on your right and left hand. What about us? So we, we had a little fight start right there. Even at the Passover, when he was about to die, they were arguing so much about who was the greatest, they weren't even aware of what was going on. Incredible. But Emmanuel called them to him and said, You know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. Whosoever will be great among you, let him be your servant. He says, Greatness is viewed by service to each other. That's how greatness is defined in the mind and the eyes of God. Whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. We're here to walk as he walked, to think as he thought, and to do as he did. We're here to give our lives as a living sacrifice. Day in and day out, sacrificing our time, our minds, our energies, to help other people. That's a hard one to live up to because we tend to put ourselves first. But to be of a ready mind, as it's put in another place, a ready mind to serve, to give, to help wherever we can to accomplish God's purposes. So he says, this argument over who's going to be in the kingdom and who's going to be the greatest when they get there, forget about it. Just get busy helping and serving and giving and loving. And get rid of the rivalry, the pride, the vanity, the ego. Because it comes down to a one-on-one -on -one level where we will compete with one another 
as to who is right and who has the best way. And it's all based on pride, vanity, and ego. Of course, I have the best way. But let's not let it get in our way. Because sometimes it does. And then we are counterproductive and don't get it done. Or get, don't get it done in as good and as well a way as it could have been done if we'd been simply willing to listen to one another and merge the best ideas instead of sticking to my way is the right way. My child's the best child, like this woman. Let's go to chapter 23, verse 8. This is along the same lines. God is giving His view and His opinion of relationships and how they ought to be conducted. Uh, Be you not called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all you are brothers. We are not above one another in any way, are we? We all smell about the same if we don't bathe. There's none of us that, you know, doesn't stink if he doesn't bathe. We're all brothers. There's only one, Christ, who is the Master. The rest of us are brothers and sisters together. So don't be called rabbi or master. Mister is a very close relationship there. And I felt a long time ago we ought to give up. In fact, I did it up in the 70s in Idaho. It was not church doctrine, but, uh, you know, Pasadena said all the ministers had to be referred to as Mr. Mr. This and Master That. And I just dropped it. I don't want to be called that. It's too close to Master. Uh, You know, here I was... A young man, and I could call an 80-year-old Bill, and old Bill had to call me Mr. Something haywire there, because I was an elder and he was just older. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't offices, that God did not put them there, that they do not have authority. Yes, that is true. But when people begin to set themselves up and think that they are higher than someone else, then that is wrong. We don't need to go around calling ourselves elder or saying, I am an elder or you've got to treat me like an elder. No, just serve and give quietly. And then you don't need a title because people will respect you for what you are and how you act and what you say and what you do. There's where the recognition and the respect must come from not from taking on a title. So he said, don't even do that. Call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. Neither be you called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. And he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Sometimes we wonder why we're having trouble. Maybe we're too proud and stubborn, and God is abasing us, and therefore we're having trouble. And He's trying to teach us to get rid of our stubborn pride. 
Sometimes we just, we just don't... Well, God, why are you doing this? This isn't fair. Why am I going through this? Well, maybe it's because you need it. God says, if you're proud, He will abase you. So humble yourself so that it doesn't happen, and then He will exalt you. You know, by and large, we bring most of our trouble on ourselves, do we not? Sometimes I see couples arguing and fighting over something and this one's right, that one's wrong. You know, I have found through life, including my own, the most married people deserve each other. For good or for bad. Marlon and I have had that discussion many times. We pretty much concluded a long time ago we deserve each other. Or we need each other, or however you want to put it. But uh, human beings do need each other. And they do need to help each other and strengthen each other and not tear each other down and apart. Chapter 25 here down to verse 34. Coming back in judgment. Then shall the king say to them on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. He says, before he ever founded human beings upon the earth, he had a plan in mind, a purpose. This is, was not done willy-nilly or on the spur of the moment. It was all planned out very carefully. And then he tells us here how he is going to judge those who are inheriting the kingdom of God. This is important to understand the Father's thinking. How he assesses you and me. These inherit the kingdom, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you in all these conditions? And the king shall answer and say to them, verse 40, Truly I say to you, insomuch as you have done it to one of the least of these my brethren, you have done it to me. Now, that harkens back to what we read about the little ones, not babes, but babes in truth, babes in preparing for the kingdom of God, and how much attention and care he has for them. And he echoes this here when he's speaking of the formality of judgment, that it is how we treat each other as little ones in Christ that our eternal life hangs in the balance of of and with. We need to think about that very incisively. How do I think about, talk about, and treat my brothers and sisters in Christ? Because it is at the very heart and core 
of the judgment God is making of each and every one of us right now, today. Today is a day of salvation for us. And what attitudes we allow ourselves to have about each other is the attitude God is going to have toward us come the final judgment. Is that scary or what? It's easy for us to think, well, I'm okay with God. I pray to God and, you know, it's, it's hunky-dory between Him and me. And we tend to bypass other human beings. Now, Christ is telling us here in no uncertain terms that we cannot do that. We are not on an island with God, and our little prayers that we pray to Him are separate from everyone and everything else. That is an absolute impossibility. He says, so many words, I will judge you by your attitude, your approach, your actions, and relationship to all the other little ones in the church the spiritual babes. That could be a series of sermons in and of itself. It is such an important thing for us to understand how God's thinking is. Our Father in Heaven is so concerned about how we deal with our siblings here. Remember, we already read it today, that those who are of the truth and worship Him and serve Him are His brothers and sisters. So He's roping us into this and saying, your eternal judgment in the kingdom of God is based upon your attitude toward those around you. Now, in a group like this, you have some that you get along with well, for the most part, most of the time. And you have others that you have trouble with. They just kind of rub you the wrong way. However, so rubbed, you have mental reactions, emotional reactions to them. And you base what you do with them, what you say to them, what you don't say to them or ignore them, or abuse them verbally behind their backs in disregard for what God says in this verse, or this passage. Think about it. Your judgment is not based just on your prayers between you and your Father in Heaven. Now, you must pray those prayers, but He even said very clearly, in the example prayer, this is the way that you should pray. Do not pray, my Father in heaven. Pray, our Father who is in heaven. Because he does not want us to follow the natural human tendency of thinking of it's just you and me, Lord. And it's my prayer to you. He wants us to have in our daily consciousness the perception, the knowledge, the understanding that we're praying to our Father as a family, as siblings together. 
He's not just my Father upon whom I want to rain thunder and lightning as the sons of thunder tried to do. He is our Father to whom we all pray and we all look to for spiritual and physical sustenance, blessings and needs, and all those things which are benefits from God. We have to look at it collectively. Yes, a determination will be made as to who rises from the earth and who doesn't. But it is going to be based upon how we treat each other. That's how the judgment will be made. If we show mercy in our attitude and our approach to each other, we will have mercy. If we are negative and condemning, we will be condemned. It all is about our relationships between ourselves and our Father in Heaven as a family. Yes, we will be judged individually, but that judgment will be based upon how we treat our family. Okay? Then he shall say also to them on the left hand, verse 41, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So now he's going to give you a view of why he is going to cause people to burn up in the lake of fire. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you took me not in. Naked, and you clothed me not. Sick, and in prison, and you visited me not. Then shall they also answer, saying, When did we see you under these conditions? And he'll say, Truly I say to you, verse 45, Inasmuch as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, a death that lasts forever, but the righteous into life eternal. There is no equivocation. There is no, hey, wait a minute. This is just the way it's going to be. How we treat each other is how he will treat us. That should give us an awful lot to think about. I think that's a good place to stop.